The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. I'm so grateful for the children's ministry of our church family, for Josh Giersch and for many others that uh, are contributing there. And I, I hope you can help out if you're able to do that this summer. So as Giersch mentioned, and by the way, those videos all summer long are again the product of Giersch Manuel. We're so grateful to have him be using his talent in this way in our church family. And uh, so this summer, we're looking forward to studying one at a time. All, all nine fruit of the Spirit will end on uh, September the 1st, Labor Day weekend. And um, by then, we'll all be Spirit-filled, I hope. And uh, a lot of fruity people around, maybe. So that'll be good. And then in September, we're looking forward to uh, the board and the staff are going to roll out uh, some of the ministry plans that we have been working on for the last few months uh, for our church family in the year 2019-20. And so we look forward to, to really clarifying what we believe God has called us to focus on as a church family under the banner of our mission statement, making and nurturing followers of Jesus Christ through healthy relationship. And so I hope that you're around in September to hear what those ministry plans will look like. And then starting in October, I'm looking forward to uh, going through the book of Genesis next year and um, been already starting to do some study and reading. And uh, I really just feel as though there's this compelling need in the body of Christ to understand what it is that um, God's Word says about so very many themes. How did we go from paradise to prison? How did we do that as a, as a humanity? What is the doctrine of the image of God? Why is that such a primary tenet of the Christian faith? And what are its implications that humans have been created in the image of God? What does God have to say about human life when it begins and when it ends and how that takes place? What does God's Word teach us about marriage, about gender? What are the themes that God has for us in the Scriptures? Why do we believe in a Creator God? All of these themes and some more have their origin in the book of Genesis. It's a foundational book, and so uh, we have been feeling that, that we need to unpack that. So I just pray that God will bless uh, this coming year as we look at Genesis. I'm looking forward to it. And today is the last day that we are actually looking at the book of Galatians. It's been amazing. The last four months we have been studying. I, we started four months ago, and um, I began by telling you about the fact that Every one of us have a RTD, a religiously transmitted disease. We have uh, acquired that disease, that illness, through wrong teaching and wrong thinking that we grew up with. We have been seeing it reinforced through wrong behavior in our own lives. And of course, the worst disease possible is the disease that remains undiagnosed, right? And so if there's a religiously transmitted disease that you are a carrier of and it has been undiagnosed by you, in other words, it's a blind spot. You don't see your license. You don't see your legalism. You've gone into the right ditch or the left ditch on your Christian freedom path. If you don't see it, if it's undetected, then it's one of the most dangerous things you are living with today in your relationship with God. And so Paul, in the book of Galatians, has been unpacking just what it is to be free in Christ and what it means to be a follower of His. 
Before we read the Scripture this morning, I would like to read to you two quotes, and the first one comes from a man by the name of David Platt. And so you're going to see them on the screen, and I'd like to read to you now. Many people today think that there are only two ways to live. They believe that they can either be religious or irreligious. They think that they have to keep a set of rules, or they think that they can live free of rules, like a hedonist. Most irreligious people think that when you are calling them to Christ, you are calling them to religion. But the gospel is something else. It is a third way. It is not about religious acts. It is not primarily a code of ethics. It is an explosion. It is about being united to Christ who then works in His followers and empowers them to live differently. The second quote comes from a man by the name of Timothy Keller. The gospel is offensive to liberal-minded people who charge the gospel with intolerance because it states that the way to be saved is through the cross. The gospel is also offensive to conservative-minded people because it states that without the cross, good people are in much, as much trouble as bad people. Ultimately, the gospel is offensive because the cross stands against all schemes of self-salvation. If someone understands the cross, it is either the greatest thing in their life or it is repugnant to them. If it is neither of those two things, they haven't understood the cross. Amen. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. Where did these two authors get such ideas from? Well, they got them from books like Galatians. And we're going to finish our study this morning that we've had on Galatians in the last four months, and we're going to finish it with the last verses found in chapter 6 and verses 11 to 18. Would you stand with me if you're able to and listen to God's Word? See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. May God bless his word. You may be seated. It's interesting that every New Testament letter, pretty much every New Testament letter, was written because of a controversy. And the controversy that is written about in Galatians is the controversy of what is the nature of salvation? Did Jesus pay it all on the cross, or is there some human contribution to be made? And if it is a divine accomplishment or human achievement, if there's a human element to the equation, then we should give credit to the more religious people for that human element. But if it is about divine accomplishment, then Christ should get all the glory, 
and all the praise. And in Paul's words, we either glory in the flesh or we glory in the cross. There were false teachers in Galatian churches that were teaching that there were some human, human achievement, there were some things that people had to do in addition to what Christ had already done. And one of those things was circumcision, this, this uh, sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. And so they, they required this. And I told you some weeks ago that when we read in books like Galatians the word circumcision or uncircumcision, we should substitute, for application's sake in our day and age, we should substitute the word religion or non-religion or irreligious. And so as Paul is intent on, on uh, concluding his letter, he reminds them of the big idea of what he writes about. In fact, he even uses big letters to remind them of the big idea. That's why he says in verse 11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So let's take a look at three things this morning. First of all, I want to ask you, answer from the question here, what is so appealing about religion? What is so appealing? In verse 12, Paul writes that there were those in the Galatian churches who wanted to look good, make a good show in the flesh. They are they wanted to have religious observances and practices that made them look good. And they were trying to force the believers to do the same and to look good in that way. Paul adds, only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. What does he mean here? Well, the cross, you see, is foolishness to the religious and to the non-religious. To the religious right and to the irreligious or lawless left. The cross is foolishness. It is foolish to the religious people because it tells them that in spite of their religious acts and in spite of being good people, in spite of good deeds, they are no further ahead in their acceptability before God than the irreligious people and the other people that are kind of bad people. So it's offensive. They still need a Savior. And the cross is offensive because of the, the fact that the good legalistic people cannot tolerate the idea that, that they're no better off with their religion than the sinner is without a religion of any kind. And the cross is foolishness to the non-religious because it tells them that there will come a day of reckoning, there will come a day when they will stand before the judgment seat of God and, and be, Paul just said it in Galatians 6, he said, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a person will reap whatever they sow. And so for the irreligious person, the cross is offensive because it tells them that regardless of how you live on this earth, you're going to stand before God and give a reckoning. God will not be mocked. John Stott says that the cross is offensive because every time we look at the cross, every time we look at the cross, Jesus seems to be saying to every one of us, I am here on this cross because of you. He is saying to every one of us, it is your sin that I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering for, your debt I'm paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in all of history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. It's the great leveler of all humanity, the cross. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, but can be justified freely by His grace. You see, it's the leveler of all of us. And so religion is appealing. Why? 
Well, religion is appealing to those who want to find a way of soothing their conscience without God. Religion is appealing to those who want to hang on to their pride and make a good show of their own righteousness. Religion is appealing to those who would like to control their relationship with God through a list of do's and don'ts. Religion is appealing to those who would like to compare themselves with others and feel in the product superior to others around them. Religion is appealing if you want to put God in a box or in a small corner of your life and complete your religious duties on a given day of the week or a given point in your day and then go on with the rest of your life feeling free to do as you please. Religion is appealing if those things appeal to you. God in a box. Make no mistake, religion is very appealing. The false teachers in Galatia were manipulators because they tried to compel others to follow their legalistic practices. They were compromisers because they wanted to avoid being mocked and persecuted for the cross of Christ like Paul was. They were hypocrites because in verse 13, Paul says, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep their law. They're hypocrites. They don't even live up to their own expectations, much less the standard that God has set. And they're also braggers because they want to boast in how many members they have following them in their legalistic ways. And so Paul says, yeah, religion is very appealing. If you can stomach living with yourself as a hypocritical, boastful, self-centered, cowardly manipulator, (laughs) that's pretty much the way Paul sees it. And that is exactly why religion is also not just appealing, but it's appalling. It's appalling in the second point, because those who claim to be religious do not really live by their own standards, much less the standard of God. It's appalling because it leads people to focus on their own performances and leave Christ aside and all that he accomplished on the cross. It's appalling Because the same people that are bound in these religious forms and duties and legalistic ways are not just content to live there themselves. They want to impose that judgment on you in their self-righteousness. They will condemn you and they will say, you're not living up to God's ways either. It's, It's appalling. But mainly it's appalling because in Paul in verse 14 says, it eclipses the cross. There's no verse in Scripture that so adequately sums up the gospel as verse 14, when Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What a liberating message. When you understand the cross and what Jesus did for you, you are a slave to no one and nothing. It is the most liberating message. The world no longer has a claim on you. And the world here is defined by this whole, all forces that are opposed to God and godliness. The world has no claim on you anymore when you understand the cross. You've died to the forces. You do not care what the world thinks of you. And you know that the world does not care what you think of them because you're just part of the foolishness of the cross. You're just part of the foolishness. You believe in a God you can't see. 
You believe in an old book that's filled with fables. You believe in a Jesus that they crucified 2,000 years ago. You swim against the current of everything that is politically correct, of everything that is in the 21st century movement of humanity and secular humanism. You are weird. So they, 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 you are crucified to the world, and the world is just as glad to be crucified from you. You, you don't have anything to do with each other. And so Paul says that that's what the cross does. And if you don't quite get it yet, let's move on to verse 15 because he'll explain even more, and this is why it is so imperative to understand true religion that Jesus invented. For Paul writes in verse 15, for neither circumcision, religion on the right, nor uncircumcision, license, hedonism, no laws, lawlessness on the left, neither religion nor irreligion or non-religion count for anything, he says. But what counts is a new creation. This is the sweet spot, folks. This is the sweet spot of the text this morning. This is, this is like one of those all-encompassing statements that Paul makes every so often. The last one he made was in chapter 5 and verse 6, when Paul said, for in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither religion or non-religion, count for anything except, it says, but what matters is faith working itself out through love. That's what he said back in chapter 5 or 6. These are one of these all-encompassing statements, and this one is another one. It's kind of like the way Jesus would be teaching along, and then all of a sudden, he would come to one of those all-encompassing statements, and he usually prefaced it by saying, Amen, amen, which means verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you. When he says that twice, ooh, I better listen. And he said it to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. What did he say? Verily, verily, I say unto you, you must be born again. You must. Non-negotiable. He says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It's one of those all-encompassing statements. That's what Paul's doing here. He's following Jesus. He's saying, religion doesn't matter. No religion doesn't matter. What matters? A new creation. That's what matters. Jesus looks down from heaven right now upon all humans on earth and he sees either there's a new creation, the Spirit of God is in and on, they are children of God because of that, or they are not and they are yet in sin. Now, you and I can't see it that way, but God sees it that way. And so Paul says that new creation is what matters. If you have new creation... The other things are okay. If you don't have new creation, all the other stuff doesn't matter. Religion, non-religion, you, ch you choose your path. They don't matter if there's not new creation. Theologians call it regeneration. That mysterious act where God, because of a sinner's condition in his mercy, God reaches down from heaven and plucks you from sin and all its consequences, and regenerates your spirit. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. 
God made you alive. He regenerated you. Spiritual life, absolutely unseen to the naked eye. God did it. He's saying, you know, what, what you do outwardly, that's good, okay. But only if God did something inwardly first. Just as Anthony testified this morning, the outward is only indicative, important because of the inward. There's two implications here, and John Stott draws our attention to them. Two implications of what is the essence of Christianity found in this text, in this verse. Number one, the essence of Christianity is inward, not outward. You've got to get that. The essence of Christianity is inward and not outward. It is not primarily about external ceremonies, practices, and traditions. It is primarily spiritual, and it's about the heart of the individual. That's primary. The second point that Stott makes that says is this is the essence of Christian faith is that it is about God and what He has done primarily, not about what you and I and what we do for God. That's the essence of Christianity. That's why Paul is preaching this to the Galatians. Now, there are some incredible ramifications for this that we need to unpack. It's a watershed characteristics. Christianity is primarily an unseen thing, a spiritual thing, and it's primarily what God does, not what you and I do. I'm going to warn you right now that some of you might be uncomfortable with what I say in the application of this text. And it might even offend, but I think if you're offended this morning, you either have not heard me correctly or you are offended because you are offended at the cross. And if the cross offends, let it be so. So, what Paul is teaching is that is this that we dare not exalt any teaching of the church any tradition of the church any practice of the church to the level of the new birth experience of the spirit of god taking someone from darkness to light from death to spiritual life from a slave to be a child of god we dare not exalt anything we do or believe to the level of this thing, which G Paul says is what counts, what Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, you must be born again. You will not see the kingdom of heaven unless this happens. It's huge. Nothing is as important as what God does in the unseen places of the heart in a spirit and soul that is lost without Christ, nothing we do outwardly is as important as what God does inwardly, and that means that water baptism is not as important as the new birth. That means that church membership is not as important as the new birth. That means that communion and the Lord's Supper is not as important as the new birth, folks. And there are many things that we could list this morning that are not as important as the new birth. And in our religious beliefs and practices, we must not indicate that we have exalted anything to the level of the new birth. Because the new birth is what God does, not what we do. 
And so fasting or serving in a ministry or attending a church service or giving an offering. We've had people say even that you have to share a testimony up here ahead of everybody if you're going to be baptized. No, you don't, folks. No, you don't. We do not want to be legalistic about these things. Yes, we want to have somebody being baptized share with the deacons or pastor. We want to know that we're not just accepting anybody off the street. We want to rejoice in the journey of God upon your life and rejoice in what Jesus Christ has done. But you don't have to get up here and share. If you are not getting up or not going through the waters of baptism because somehow you think you've got to stand ahead of hundreds of people and share, then you're disobedient. We don't want to lend to your disobedience. We want you to get baptized. Do the outward thing of, thing of the inward reality, folks. Do it. Don't, don't let another week go by without you saying, I've got to get baptized. I'm disobeying God. Because he said, go therefore and make disciples and baptize them, teach them. Let me read to you a quote from John Stott. I like what John Stott says here. He says, what matters primarily is not whether a man has been circumcised or baptized, or not, but whether he has been born again and is now a new creation. Circumcision was, and baptism is, an outward sign and seal of this. The circumcision of the body symbolized the circumcision of the heart. Similarly, baptism with water symbolizes the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it is lamentable, a lamentable tragedy, when men become so topsy-turvy in their thinking that they substitute the sign for the thing signified, magnify a bodily ceremony at the expense of a change of heart and make circumcision or baptism the way of salvation instead of the new creation. Circumcision and baptism are things of the flesh, outward and visible ceremonies performed by men. The new creation is a birth of the Spirit, an inward and invisible miracle performed by God. End of quote. I think he nails it. Praise God. we got to get this right. In Thunder Bay, when I was pastoring there, I had a sign in my office on my door. <clears throat> and it said this. It said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I think Paul's talking about the main thing here, isn't he? Paul's talking about the main thing and we must determine that we will not let lesser things than the main thing cloud our vision, blur our perspective about the main thing, which is a new creation. People getting right with God. God beginning the transforming, sanctifying work by his Holy Spirit. I dare say there will be many believers in heaven. In fact, I, I'm not even... I know there will be many believers in heaven who were baptized as infants. I know there will be many believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, in heaven that were baptized as adults by pouring or sprinkling. I know there will be some believers in heaven that were not baptized by water at all. I know that. <laughs> I hope you know that. We don't believe that <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is a submarine. He can only get you under the water. We don't believe that. 
There will also be believers in heaven who have wrestled with a particular vice or sin their entire lives, and they will be in heaven. There will be people in heaven who have been a grumpy spirit on earth their entire life long. <laughs> I heard an amen. <clears throat> Maybe you're living with one. There will be people in heaven of all, which is the greater sin? The sin of commission, of struggling with alcohol your entire life, never quite getting rid of it? Or the sin of omission, not being baptized? And what's the main thing? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing, friends, is that you are in a right relationship with God. Many, many years ago when I was studying at Acadia Divinity College in Nova Scotia, and I had for my Baptist history and polity course, Dr. Gerald K. Zeman, Czech Republic theologian that was incredibly brilliant. And we had to write a position paper on the eight or ten different Baptist distinctives. And I remember I submitted my paper, and one of the eight, of course, was regenerate church membership. I believe in regenerate church membership. And the system that the Baptists have put in place for regenerate church membership is a human system that says that everybody that goes through the waters of baptism by immersion as a believer they must be regenerate. That's our hope. It's a system. See, my point is not minimizing the importance of baptism, of disobedience to one of the things that Christ said as his last words, be baptized. My point is let's not get off track, friends. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Paul concludes and says that this thing he just identified in verse 15 is a rule. It's interesting. Paul, who is preaching non-legalism, says, here's a rule. He calls the new creation emphasis a rule. And he, says, and he says in verse 16, as for all who walk or live by this rule, peace and mercy be upon you and upon the Israel, the church of God. And then Paul says, from now on, no, no one caused me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Paul suffered for the cross. And then he ends with that wonderful verse, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, brothers. Important that his last sentence had the word grace in it. Okay? You'll notice in the reflection questions in my uh, insert in the bulletin, I gave you one of the questions was, where do you lean? Do you lean more to the left? of being lawless, license-oriented as a Christian? Or do you lean more to the right, being more legalistic as a Christian? You know, there's a story of John chapter 8, a story of the woman caught in adultery. And uh, I find this is an incredible story because it, it demonstrates to us that Christ saves us and puts us on a road of freedom that he chooses to try and not let us fall into the right ditch or the left ditch. 
You know the story how she's caught in, in adultery and put before her. People who want to stone her. The Pharisees are there. And Jesus does some things confronting them in their sin. He says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, beginning with the eldest to the youngest, one by one they leave. And he stands up, Jesus stands up, and he says, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? And the woman said, no one, master. And Jesus then said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you notice in this that this incredible Jesus avoided the ditch of condemning legalism on the right, and he avoided the ditch of compromising license on the left, because he, he said to her, leave your life of sin. We are saved to sin no more. And, and this is the road of freedom that Christ has paved for you too. Wherever you find yourself, he finds you maybe in the ditch on the right in your religious tryings and trappings, or he finds you in the ditch on the left in your attempts at freedom and self-fulfillment, and he says to you, come with me. I want to do life with you. I want you on the road to freedom. Do not be a slave to the religious right, nor a slave to the lawless left. Come with me. Let's walk together. Let's do life together. And with my spirit in you, I can help you. Instead of living your life like a zigzag, that's what I feel like I'm like sometimes. I'll go from the, the left ditch of lawlessness to the right ditch of legalism, and then I'll get back on the road. And instead of zigzagging kind of like my golf game down the fairway, I, I I just want to stay with Jesus on the main road. I want to stay on the freedom road that doesn't let me get enslaved to religious bondage nor worldly bondage, but stays under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, I think, what Christ has called us to. And I want to pray for you. Would you stand? That... This morning, with whatever the Holy Spirit has been saying to you this morning, whatever message it is that seems to land on your conscience, on your mind or heart today, I just want to pray for you that the Holy Spirit of God will have his freedom and power and liberty to, to move into your life and mind and just, to just take you back onto that road of freedom. And now, Father God, as we conclude this service, we acknowledge, O oh God, that your word is a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, that, that, the part that's lit is your freedom that we find in Jesus Christ. That's what Galatians has been all about. And we confess, God, that we have a leaning. Some of us are leaning more to the right of legalism, and some of us are leaning more to the right, left of, of license. But Father, we want to be set free from any kind of enslavement to self or to religion. And Lord, we want to live and, and, and grow on the path that you've called us to. So would you help us, Lord? Would you enable us? And right now, hear the prayer of, of every person that is just lifting up their heart to you. Hear the prayer of every person, Lord, as we seek to live under the Lordship of Christ and the freedom of the Holy Spirit and his power. Help us, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name.